what is the, I don't know how to word this, do you think it's too late for it to become a fluent language? It's never too late. My name is Nancy Harn. Nildali was a Justed Alug, Depaz of Galwazitid Nagigug, Otse Lotsen, Naga Tepe Yoyotel Nikwan Sewat. My name is Ramona Nicholas. Quay Dali was Mequayid Quaxase Pid, Najeo Akbahak. My name is Jen Rowett. Lopkahaz of Jeepnuts, and that translates into a spot of turtle. You're listening to Sidebar. A production brought to you by the Brunswickin and CHSR. I'm Alexander Silverman. And I'm Isabel Legier. We're going to take you beyond the headlines once a month. Focusing on issues in Fredericton, New Brunswick. This month's episode is on the future of Indigenous languages. We'll speak with a Wollastuckyuk elder working to keep her language alive. But if we use it and speak it and, and bring it back to life... You know, then it can be, it can survive. And take a trip to a sweat lodge to learn how ceremonies are transferring knowledge. Welcome back. This episode is the second of our two-part series on Indigenous languages. On this show, we'll examine the efforts to preserve and revive the Wolistikwe and Mi'kmaq languages in New Brunswick. number of native speakers dwindles, the push to revive and save these languages is becoming increasingly urgent. Three out of four living indigenous languages in Canada are said to be endangered. The Wollastoque language is especially in danger. In the last census, Statistics Canada found a 57% decline over 15 years in the number of people with Maliseet or Wollastoque as their mother tongue. Some experts estimate only a few dozen fluent speakers remain. In last month's episode, we introduced you to Willistoque elder Amelda Purley. Purley is the elder in residence at the University of New Brunswick. She teaches language and native studies courses at UNB and St. Thomas University. Hurley is one of the leaders in Indigenous language revival efforts in New Brunswick. We want to make sure that we encourage future speakers by coming to be those medicine people, anybody that's willing to carry our language with us. So what we're trying to promote is having the whole community learn again with the few speakers we have left so it needs to be um it needs to be promoted protected you know and i know there's new legislation we have a new aboriginal languages act that the prime minister has uh, put into law and so what we're trying to do is work from that now granted there isn't enough funding to be able to maintain it like english and french they're funded you know uh but we're not and so how do we jump that hurdle when we don't have the, you know, financial support to keep our language alive. 
In 2017, the New Brunswick Department of Education rolled out a 10-year plan designed to meet calls to action from the Federal Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Advanced Mi'kmaq and Wolastukwai language courses are now available for students of First Nations ancestry at New Brunswick public schools. The curriculum now includes a new Native Studies course and Indigenous content in social studies and history courses. Hurley says those changes don't go far enough. I taught at Fredericton High School, and I was shocked that I couldn't teach my language to non-Indigenous students, even though they were sneaking into my class. For one thing, they treated my language at the high school, and I was only there for three years because I did, I, I felt that I was tokenizing the language because how do I teach my Indigenous students to be proud of their language? When nobody else is allowed to learn it, but English nor French was isolated, anybody could take it. So I felt insulted by not allowing non-Indigenous people to learn our language because I felt, why not? In February, the federal Liberal government tabled legislation to protect Indigenous languages. The legislation creates the Office of the Commissioner of Indigenous Languages, aimed to protect and promote languages. This new office will plan activities to restore and maintain fluency, create educational materials, and preserve permanent records. The government has a responsibility to give back everything they took in resources, land base, and the pollution that we have because there's you know an influx of industry coming to take. So I consider my language to be a resource, and I want that resource back. Do you know at this time how that act might impact New Brunswick? Yes, because I just wrote the Office of First Nations here in the Department of Education. She is going to try to partner up because there's language initiatives, of course, across the country. So what I told her, I said, could you put in all the work that we're doing here in New Brunswick and introduce Wollastaway? Because every time I've traveled out west or anywhere around the world. They'll be surprised. Really, there's another language besides Mi'kmaq, and I'm going. Yes, there is. You know, so I'm asking her to help me promote that there's another language in the Atlantic provinces besides Mi'kmaq. Mi'kmaq is really healthier than our languages because they uh, they have more speakers. They're they actually have speakers that organize themselves as a language group that protect their languages and insist. For us, we're just all on our own. So what we need to do is have that same kind of uh, commitment to coming together. There is an issue on language uh, orthography, you know. So for a while, I was the sole linguist, and so I never worried about having more than one writing system. And so unfortunately, there's another writing system that came up, so now it's another divider or an invisible wall when people say, well, I want to learn this system, but now there's another system. And the issue is uh, I wanted to get away from international phonetic alphabet. I'm a linguist by trade. I didn't want to have to use any of the diacritic marks that linguists that we as linguists use to learn all languages. I wanted our language to be totally unique with Passamaquoddy and Wollastogway. And so we didn't want to use any diacritic marks. But the new learners are learning these diacritic marks and think, oh, that's so linguistic. 
let's use the schwa, let's use these marks. So it's a challenge in our communities when they want to write, but they're afraid to have to make a choice this way or that way. And I'm just saying, just write, just speak, just hear, just use, just learn. You know, that's the most important thing. Can you tell us some of the steps that you're taking right now to help preserve the language? My favorite thing to do is naming newborn babies. I give them a spirit name. And matter of fact, for our language gathering we're doing in April, I'm going to do a grand entry of most of the babies. I've, na I've named over 100 babies. And for me, they're the future. They're the ones carrying on. I was in Kingsclear First Nation last night, and one of the young boys, nine years old, he come to me and he goes, remember me? And I said, yep. Yeah, Pizoni Benopsk. He goes, oh, you remember my spirit? And I said, I gave it to you. Of course I do. You know, and so, but anyways, he was proud of that and he remembered it. So that's the biggest step is babies coming into the world. I want them to be blessed with their language so that they don't think that their language is nowhere else for them to learn. That's one way. I do community work. I go to communities and do language nested for parents and grandparents and all of that. I also, uh, here at the university, we have our language courses, but we're also developing apps, you know, and stuff. And we're in the process of doing our second language app, actually, right now. And, of course, I put everything online for those that live in Texas that are from our community and don't have access to speakers so they get to go online and hear traditional songs, traditional stories. There's publications, there's books, there's the dictionary, there's, there's, there's a lot that we're doing. And I think that's the essence of uh, growth is making sure we have learning activities that we can learn language in games, language in, you know, prayers, language in stories, language in songs, language in everything we do. There's a lot more to be done. We need materials, but that's where the federal government and the province would come in. If there was that much support, then we can develop all of these amazing things we can do instead of deciding, now, what can we do with 10000 It may sound like a lot of money, but when it comes to copying and publishing and materials and, you know, speakers, it's, it's not enough you know, and stuff. So we just want the same resources that French and English have. Through the Mi'kmaq Wollastoqway Center, Pearlie and her husband David created the Wollastoqway Latawewakan language app last year. The app aims to teach people how to use words and phrases related to the Wollastoqway people and their culture. <laughs> Users can hear words related to holidays, animals, medicines, seasons, clothing, weather, games, and ceremonies. The phrases are read by Amelda Pearlie. They can even be used in everyday life. That's how you say baseball bat. And I just want to read one more thing. There's something one of my students wrote in that blue card. Do you want to give it? This was from one of our students, a teacher, and we do um, cultural immersion for teachers. So this was one of uh, one of the teachers left this story and stuff because we did a talking circle and the teacher gifted this at our giveaway. And this teacher said, "Teach my tongue to talk, to stumble and crawl through the hills of your name as a child learns to walk." To smile and to stutter, 
and like a loving mother, you show me the way home. Let me falter and fall, and with a guiding word call to ears longing to know the name of our earth and the tales of her birth, the songs of the trees and the love gone unseen. Teach my tongue to talk. Nancy Harn is a Mi'kmaq woman from Eel River Bar First Nation. She's learning her language through courses at the University of New Brunswick. I want to pass that on now to my children and my grandchildren. That's what I'm doing with this course. I'm I'm not great at it yet, but I am learning, and what I know, I'm passing it on. Ramona Nicholas is a Listaquai woman from Tobik First Nation, pursuing a doctorate degree at UNB. So I came from a generation where speaking the language was not appropriate or frowned upon. The only time I ever heard my mother speak the language was when my grandmother was around, and that's the only opportunity that I had to hear it. And so I felt like learning the language wasn't as important back then <laughs> as I do now. Now I have grandchildren, and so I'm I'm learning with them, and that's my, my goal is to make sure that they become speakers. How has the experience been now that you've actually started learning the language? It's a good experience. I'm also, I do a lot of ceremony, so connecting back, it, it, it's important to kind of use the language in, in what I'm doing as well. So that way, I not only feel the connection, but others kind of are able to feel it as well. And how do you feel about the current state of where the language is and the fight for perseverance? I'm hopeful. I mean, I know that there's a lot of opportunities for people to continue on with the language. So, you know, and, and for myself, I'm I'm doing what I can, but I think that we, we do have hope and I'll continue with that. Jennifer LeBlanc was born in Manitoba. She has Mi'kmaq, Scottish, and Acadian roots. Today, she's the coordinator of Wabanaki Language Revival at UMB's Mi'kmaq Willistic Way Center. Well, it's been a bit of a journey for me uh, through being a young person growing up in Manitoba, disconnected from my dad's reserve, Astagouche, and trying to find out who I am in that piece of my life. So I accepted this position here two years ago as the coordinator of language revival, uh, Wabanaki language revival from Imelda and Dave. And it's been almost two years and it has been an exciting journey, one of introspection, one of reflection reflection on uh, my own identity and who I am. But it's been fantastic. I wouldn't trade it for the world. I am very happy to be on the land of my ancestors. And do you speak Willistiquay now or... I don't. <laughs> I'm not fluent. I do learn what I can. Uh, and I know a little of my dad's language, Mi'kmaq, a little bit. So that's something that I'm continuing to journey through. I would agree with you, uh, Ramona, and with Imelda, that there is hope. Uh, I see just the excitement of youth and the understanding of the importance of language, the importance of it to our identity, but also something that that we can pass on to the next generations as well. Again, it's a learning journey for me. So even being around people who are speaking either Mi'kmaq or Wolastrophe is, is very is fascinating to me. And it's of interest to me. 
Uh, and I want to encourage others, whether it's through our language gathering or through other activities, that uh, it's very important to learn your language uh, and your mother tongue and to share it with others, uh, whether you're Indigenous or non-Indigenous. I agree with Melda on that. It's super important for everyone to be able to help save our language, uh, languages. Pearly and many carriers of the language believe anyone interested in learning should have the opportunity. This includes non-Indigenous students. Jen Rowett is one of them. Currently a doctorate student at the UNB Faculty of Education, she's learning Wallistaque. So I've been taking language. I've been looking forward to this moment, knowing that I'd want to take language for several years now. So it's just really exciting to be taking this language course with our elder in residence, Imelda Pearley. Why did you choose to learn this language and how did you end up in this course? Personal reasons and reasons that have to do more with reconciliation. So personally, I've been um, involved in Indigenous communities for a number of years, like personally attending ceremony, like sweat lodge ceremonies and, and other kinds of ceremony. So I've picked up language along the way. It also meant a lot to me, like this fall, for example, to be able to honour the language, the original language, you know, of this territory. You know, been something that I've been aware of for a long time, but the language is such an important part of the culture. In fact, I mean, I've heard some folks say that it is the culture. So to be able to weave in the language into my dissertation and... Um, and not just that, like it's not just about learning words, it's about learning the culture. There's one thing that Imelda always says that, you know, you learn this language with your heart and your body and your mind, not just your mind. And I've been feeling that since the beginning, like it gives me the shivers even now, um, because the way that it's taught is through story and through experiences. So like the end may be a phrase or a word that we learn, but like it's so easy for me to remember because there's been a whole story that was shared surrounding that. So when I say the word, I have this heart space around the, the phrase or the word because I've learned it through story. And I've always appreciated language, like I've taken you know different kinds of language uh, classes on campus here. But it hasn't been the same, like it hasn't been taught the same. You know, it's been taught very, I guess, cognitively. And that's the way I've always learned language. So it's been a really different experience. And then when I think about, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action, bringing awareness of the language and how beautiful it is and sharing it with other people and feeling like Imelda has given me permission to do that, all of us in the class, um, feels really good. Why is language important in general? I've had some recent experiences when I was in Argentina about a year ago. There was no English. And I had this huge epiphany as to just how much language is a part of who we are. I was at a professional conference and, you know, had no reason to feel lonely, like I was surrounded by, you know, people who shared, you know, the same profession that I do. But it was really interesting how isolated and lonely I started to feel because no, I couldn't connect with anybody through language, through communication. And I remember just being so tired. I'd been giving my presentation, which was being translated, um, you know, into Spanish, and uh, nobody spoke my language. And it made me think, of course, about what it must have been like in, um, well, I mean, we could share all kinds of examples like residential schools where people were abused for speaking their language and told not to speak their language. 
And of course, we know the, the history of how colonization has taken, you know, language away. But on a very personal level last year, I guess I realized that, like, wow, it's a part of who I am, right? Like, my language is how I express myself. It's how I connect with other people. It's, and it, I guess I've heard for so long about how it's such a, an important part of Wolstagway and Mi'kmaq culture. But until that moment, I was like, wow, if somebody told me, like, I couldn't speak English, the heaviness of that really started uh, to settle in and made me realize just what you would be taking away of a person. Uh, you mentioned a bit how it's taught verbally through these courses. Uh, could you explain a little bit more what the experience in class is like and how the language is being taught? Well, for me, um, w- there's been a huge focus. This is, you know, my first course, and I'll take uh, this part two next term on vowel sounds and consonant sounds. And honestly, I feel like I'm sometimes I get hard on myself, but really at this point, three months in, I feel like, you know what, actually, that was a really reasonable goal because I'm starting to look at words now and be able to really work with them and sound them out quite quickly, like new words. We are also writing as well. So it's both verbal or oral and written in uh, in the Wollstokway language class. So a lot of focus on practice and, you know, like numbers, months, days. Like I think some of those elements would be common to other language classes. What do the enrollment numbers look like at these classes at UMB? <laughs> uh, I think in my class there is... 20 or 22 students. Do you know if these numbers have been growing over the last few years or have they been pretty steady or? Well, I think they are at maximum capacity. So I'd say that the the enrollment has been good. And I would say like as a non-Indigenous individual too, you know, entering those spaces, there's just a sense of welcoming, like from both the instructors and fellow students, which really appreciate because I feel like it is such a gift. Like it, it is part of the culture. To me, it's not the same as going to other language classes that I've taught where it's primarily people sitting in the classroom who aren't part of that culture, right? So this feels much more sacred to me. Indigenous language is also being passed along through ceremony. We took a trip out to a sweat lodge on the edge of St. Mary's First Nation to learn more. We drove up to a pale blue house with a long driveway, just down the street from the elementary school at St. Mary's. Next to the garage and tucked behind snowbanks was the sweat lodge. There's a fire going in front, preparing for the ceremony to begin, and gradually people started to arrive, and there was a really friendly atmosphere there. Everybody was very respectful and seemed to know one another, and There was a a very, very positive vibe and atmosphere I was getting from the people who attended. Yeah, there was everyone introduced themselves to us, and we were even told by the two men who run the sweat lodges, Chuck Sewell and Chris Brooks, they said that, you know, you're part of our family now. That was one thing that really hit me. They made us introduce ourselves to everyone, and it was just a very happy atmosphere. You could tell everyone was just excited and having a good time. So then... But I'm quite claustrophobic, so I got very nervous when I saw the size of the sweat lodge. And then 
we all went in, and the other thing that freaked me out was that I didn't realize that it was actually going to be pitch black, right? Were you surprised by that? I was surprised. I did not expect it to be completely, completely dark. It's a very surreal experience how you're completely in the darkness with this strong, strong heat surrounding you. And so basically what they do is there these there's these rocks have been in fire, so they're really, really hot, and then they just put water on them, and then that creates this steam. So you can imagine the steam just, like, hits you like a brick. And so you're in this pitch blackness. You're sweating profusely. I panicked a little bit. It was uh, an interesting <laughs> experience. So let's talk a bit about language and what we heard yeah. um, throughout this event and how language was incorporated. And also let's talk about the people who were leading this that we had the chance to meet. So it was mostly done in English. So everything when they explained everything, it was done in English. And the only things that were done in the language were the prayers, and there was a lot of song but mostly it was in English. So they would go around and ask people about their troubles or stuff like that, and we would all do that in English. But I would say despite the fact that the instructions and kind of the facilitation of the ceremony was largely in English, uh, there was quite a bit of language incorporated. I mean, we heard quite a bit that day through the songs that would occur in each round. There would be um, a few songs. There were prayers in the language. We felt really immersed and surrounded, I feel like in the language, and the Sweat Lodge conductors told us it's a way of carrying the language and moving it forward and incorporating it and passing it along because people regularly will continue to hear that language and hear those words being used through the Sweat Lodge. And I also found it interesting because when, you know, as soon as we were put in the darkness and we had all that heat around us, I started to panic a little bit. In order to stop and to get calm, I had to sing along, which... In that experience, it feels almost spiritual because you have everyone coming in together. Most of us probably don't even know what we're saying, but we're all singing together, and it's it's quite beautiful, actually. One thing I think that stays with me from the ceremony was the teachings. Yeah. What do you remember about the first teaching, Isabel? So Chris said that every time you do a sweat lodge, you'll learn a new teaching. So for the newbies, I think there were three of us there that day, he said, your first teaching is going to be in the first session. I was kind of confused, like, what do you mean by a teaching, right? So when the first session was done, they opened up the door. I was, like, crawling out of there because I just wanted to get to the air, right? We come back in, and he says, so do any of you know what your first teaching was? And we all kind of looked at each other confused, like, I don't know. (laughs) And he said, your first teaching was the value of air. So basically... You don't, you don't realize how important air is or you take it for granted until you aren't able to breathe. That's something now that I think of on a daily basis. Before we went into the sweat lodge and experienced the ceremony, uh, the two of us went inside the garage, sat down with both of these elders and sweat lodge conductors, and spoke with them about their relationship with their languages and what the ceremony means and how language is a vital role of the Sweat Lodge Ceremonies. We spoke with Chris Brooks, a Willistook Way elder and Sweat Lodge conductor. Well, uh, I'd like to introduce myself with my traditional name. Uh, 
my traditional name uh, is Lapskahaza Jeepnux, and that translates into uh, Spotted Turtle. And I was uh, given that name by uh, two other elders, our teachers, uh, through uh, years working with them, uh, learning from them, studying underneath them. You know, we, we earn these things through over time, and we learn these things through traditional practices such as sweat lodge, such as fasting. So we would uh, go out into the woods at least once a year to deprive ourselves mentally, physically, and emotionally to gain spiritually. When you look at the four quadrants of a person's life, the medicine wheel teachings, the four parts of yourself, and uh, that's how I uh, got my name. Why do you think sweat lodges and similar ceremonies are so important? You know, uh, looking back at things for myself, uh, you know, my uh, story is uh, very similar in regards to my friend, my brother here, in regards to struggling with uh, uh, substance uh, abuse for a very long time and and, and lacking uh, that ability to recognize who I was as an Indigenous man. And, you know, I sort of found my my way, I guess, working in the prison system. Correctional officer for many years. I'm retired uh, 23 years with the Correctional Service Canada. I started my career in the New Salonic Institution in 1993. And uh, during that time, you know, I was struggling with identity, with purpose, meaning, struggling with alcoholism because uh, that uh, intergenerational impact, that negative cycle of continuous problems. In, in, in regards to, to my uh, my father uh, being abusive towards my mother, drinking, you know, I've seen these things. And I remember when I was young, I, I told myself I'm never going to be like my father. And, uh, you know, guess what happened? I ended up just like him. I'm sober now. I've been sober for 23 years. It's something that I'm very proud of. And it was through the assistance of traditional people. And how I got connected was watching traditional people come into the prison system to help inmates. And as a correctional officer, you know, you, you, you have your own uh, preconceptions of things. Inmates are this, inmates are that. And being, you know, having a uniform on, having that little bit of power and control for uh, individuals. And it comes with a set of rules that you, you must uh, abide by in that type of environment. So uh, I remember this one elder came in there and, you know, I stopped him one day and asked him, I said, why are you, why are you helping these scumbags, right? And then uh, he looks me right in the eye and he says, because I care. And that's sort of how it sort of started for me, I guess. So I took it upon myself to just to be as an Aboriginal staff member. Uh, we were few and far between. There wasn't many of us at the time when I first started. So I took it upon myself because when the traditional people were coming in, there were still some problems People, other people's belief systems. And I have no control over that. Whatever you believe, you believe, right? So I slowly took it upon myself to, to help uh, the elders when they came there, um, made myself available if needed. That's how my journey started. And I was struggling with addictions for uh, a very long time. And then when I transferred from Renouche down to Spring Hill, Nova Scotia in 2000, 2016, I believe it was, that the Correctional Service asked me to take another, uh, uh, change my role. Uh, so I, to work more with the indigenous population that they had so we can, you know, get them ready for release into the community. So what that meant was I was working 
hand in hand with a with an alder in the prison system. This alder, uh, very special man, you know, very humble man. And you know, I, I remember sitting there asking him one day, you know, would you be my teacher, right? And he, he said, nope, can't be your teacher. And he said, you have to find somebody in your own community. So I took it upon myself because uh, I was traveling back and forth every other weekend, and I would, you know, take it upon myself to to reach out and. This lady that's coming here today was one of the first ladies I reached out to. So I asked her, how do I get involved? What, how do I learn more? I was asking those types of questions. And she sort of introduced me uh, to another gentleman. And I went to the sweat lodge for the first time uh, at his home. And I know I, I, I have known both these individuals all my life. And they're the first... Uh, individuals that brought this stuff back to our communities and the gifts of, of their um, commitment to things uh, because when they first started doing these things it was still illegal in Canada to practice these traditional ceremonies because of the Indian Act and because of the assimilation policy of the government at the time and they risked a lot of things because they believed in these things and I'm, I'm very humble uh, to this day that he feels the same way and uh, these things were passed on from their teachers to them and they passed it on to us. It's a gift that uh, I, I feel that it you know brings people together, people with uh, a common denominator and, and that denominator could be many different things. It could be uh, recovery, uh, it could be uh, uh, healing you know from a traumatic relationship, it could be just uh, self-identifying, you know, uh, looking for that, that meaningful purpose in, in one's life, because, there's, and like I said earlier, there's a lot of many reasons people come here. For the indigenous people, a lot of our people are still, there's what we call a sacred fire within yourself, the gift of that spiritual energy that we have, and it's getting lowered because of lack of knowledge, lack of connection. Uh, lack of pride, lack of love, lack of trust. So we tried to build that back up. We tried, just like that fire, when we first start that fire, you know, you, you light it and it just, you know, starts off slow, right? But over time, it's out there burning nice and hot, burning nice and brightly. So those are the things that we tried to teach our people. And for anybody that comes here, the sweat lot teaches us about respect. The sweat lodge teaches us about love. And most importantly, it's going to teach us about trust. Are you a fluent speaker? Myself? Uh, no, but uh, I, I learn every day. Right? And, you know, maybe someday I, I might be, maybe someday I might not be, but I'm content with, with what I know and, and, and I'm happy with it. Right? Sort of thing, right? And, and language is, is making a comeback now. And that thing was taken away from a lot of people too, as well, as you know. But it's being taught in schools here today, and young people, uh, uh, you know, because what changed it for me, and I can look back at it, and I can be open about it, what changed it for me, where I lost some stuff when my father died. I was only 12 years old when he passed on, 11, 12 years old. And my mother wasn't really, you know, uh, you know, passing that stuff on, and I don't blame her for that, right? I know now, because of, of knowledge and understanding, because I don't blame my father for anything, I don't blame my, my mother for anything. 
it, half my family are, are fluent speakers, but I'm not the half of the family that's not fluent. And I accept that for what it is, right? And I can, I can speak a few words and I'm happy with what I know. And I'm learning, you know, I'm learning every day, right? And like I said, maybe someday I will be, but, you know, maybe someday I won't be and I'm content with that. I, I, I don't lose any sleep over it. You know, because I was always told that even if we sing songs in our language, and I can sing songs in our language, that our ancestors are, are pleased and happy to hear you sing. They'll be pleased and happy to be seeing us being sharing this uh, ceremony. Back on the University of New Brunswick campus, an Indigenous language conference has brought people together from communities around the province for a four-day event. For Imelda Purley, this is one of her last projects after a long career teaching language and Native Studies courses. Along with her husband, David, she will be retiring at the end of April. But she hopes the push to save languages, especially Wallistaque, will continue. Which means... Grandmothers and grandfathers, thank you for the language you saved for us. It's now our turn to save it for the ones not yet born. Thank you so much for listening to this month's episode. We would love to hear your comments and thoughts on the future of New Brunswick's Indigenous languages. To leave a comment by voicemail, give us a call at 506-999-4993. This has been a production of the Brunswickin and CHSR. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions and Jeremy Dutcher. I'm Alexander Silberman. And I'm Isabel Legier. Thanks for listening. <laughs>